Amen. What a privilege it is, what a joy it is to be able to gather together each week with the people of the Lord and worship His name. I hope and pray that it is a privilege that we do not take for granted. It is a privilege for us to come together week in and week out and to sit together under the authority of Holy Scripture. So with that in mind, let's turn to God's Word. If you have a Bible, please open with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, and we will pick up where we left off uh, last week. We began looking at verses 7 through 11, and we made it through verse 8, and so the the primary focus today will be verses 9 through 11, but we want to kind of get a running start and kind of take all of this together to see it all in its context. We're considering in this passage Christian living at the end of days. Christian living at the end of days. This passage is straightforward. It is didactic, and there, there's just so much exhortation that we can see in these few short verses of Scripture. In a way, it's a little bit challenging to progress through because Peter does kind of change topics rapidly. He, he's giving kind of rapid-fire exhortation and instruction to the church, instructing the church how we should live as the return of Christ draws near. We know that we live in evil days, and we know that the world is going to only grow greater in that evilness, in that sin, in that wickedness. And as that happens, dear friends, as that happens, we must be devoted to Christ and devoted to Christ likeness. That's really what flows out of this text is that as the end draws near, we must be devoted to Christ and Christ likeness. So with that in mind, we, we want to Look at this scripture, it lays forth really five exhortations and brackets on either side that's kind of a, a ground and a pinnacle uh, of what Peter instructs here. So I want to read the text and then we need to ask the Lord for his help and his blessing as we study the word. I'll ask if you're able to please stand with me as we give attention to the reading of scripture. First Peter chapter 4. Verse 7, this is the holy, inspired, and inerrant word of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen, indeed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now please bow with me as we go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, you are in the heavens 
glorified, great, magnificent, glorious. You are holy, you are just, and you are righteous. Lord, you are worthy to be praised. As we come now to our time of worship through the teaching and preaching of Scripture, I ask, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are soft, hearts that are humbled, hearts that are ready to receive and apply the truth. Lord, you must break up the heart in the stony ground. You must, by the powerful working of your Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, your Spirit is a helper and a comforter, but he is also the illuminator of the truth. That is, he allows our minds to see and comprehend what is true and right. And not only to see and understand what is true and right, but to see ourselves in light of that truth. So, Lord, I would ask today, as we are all gathered under the authority of your word, that your spirit would do that exact work by, by helping us to understand the truth, but also to introspectively consider our hearts and our lives and our works, our deeds, before you in light of the truth that we see in your word today. Lord, would you show us Christ? We're reminded at the conclusion of this that, that you are glorified through Christ, and it is to Christ that belongs all glory and dominion forever and ever. It is a glorious Christ and Savior that we serve. Would you help us to see and understand that Savior in a, in a fresh way today? Would you, Lord, turn our eyes upon Jesus would you help us to fix our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought and revealed at the return of Christ Lord fit us for heaven and cause us to long for heaven we pray that your word would find a, a place to stay and remain in our hearts sanctify us by the truth Lord, our desire is that all that we say and do today will we'll lift high and make much of Christ and that you would cause us to be more like the Savior that we serve. As this in Christ's name, amen. So again, we're considering Christian living in the end of days. Christian living in, in, living in the end of days. And as we do that, you have to consider what Peter is driving at here. He's driving at the fact that we must pursue that Christ-purchased communion with the Lord, and we must pursue Christ-honoring love and fellowship and discipleship, Christ-honoring service to the Lord and his church and his people. That's what we're driving at. That is the point here. We, we saw in verse 7 that there's this great urgency in which we should live because the end is near and we do not know when Christ will return. Christ said that we must be on the alert. We must be on the ready. 
We must be ready to act because we don't know the day nor the hour that he will return. We must be prepared. We must live in light of the fact that he could come back the very next moment and we desire to be found going about and doing his work and his business. Again, I think the most telling and informative description of this is that we must have urgency. We must know that Christ can come and there's only so many moments. There are only so many opportunities to, one, obey his commands, and two, to proclaim the gospel to those who don't know Christ. We must live to accomplish as much as we can for his sake as long as we have breath, as long as he tarries or as long as he tarries in calling us home. We want to accomplish as much as we possibly can for the sake of Christ, the spread of the gospel, and the glory of his name. So living in light of his return is kind of the ground of the text. That's where Peter starts, and everything builds up from that point. And we see these exhortations in the middle, and then we reach this kind of climactic point in verse 11 where we see that the Lord is glorified in Christ The Lord is glorified in Christ by and through the bride of Christ. That is the pinnacle of this text. So you have a ground, the the groundwork, and then you have this pinnacle, and then we have all of this in between that tells us how to get from point A to point B, from the ground level to the pinnacle, and that is that we live in light of the exhortations given in this text. There there are five distinct instructions and three broad areas of practice. How we commune with the Lord, how we relate to his people, and how we serve his church. Last time we considered that kind of first idea, the idea of communion with the Lord, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. As Christians, we must be praying people. We must commune with the Lord, for that is our foretaste of glory in this life. Communion with God in in things like worship as we're gathered today and, and even privately in prayer, that is a foretaste of glory. That is what those in Christ will do for the rest of eternity. They will commune with and worship God in his holiness and with us being in our state of perfection and purity and righteousness. Sometimes when you think about prayer in that way, you should understand that we probably have too low a view of the importance of prayer. Prayer is our living out of the union that we so graciously and gloriously have with God through Christ. Think about it this way. We have access to the throne of the Most High God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of all things. We have access directly to his throne because we're washed in the blood of Christ and we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit and the Spirit intercedes for us. Christ intercedes for us and we are commanded to come boldly, boldly to the throne of grace. If you want to walk with the Lord in the end of days, you must commune with him. Evil men will proceed from bad to worse. To walk with God, to remain in Christ as the world gets more and more evil, 
you must walk in communion with him. We walk in communion with the Lord by being of sound judgment and sober spirit, by having hearts and minds and spirits and emotions that are full of the truth. To be of sound judgment and sober spirit ultimately means that you are full of the knowledge and the practical outworkings of God's word. So know the scripture, live the scripture, practice the scripture for the sake and for the purpose of your communion with the Lord. Then Peter also says, the, the next thing we looked at was he says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Do you understand, as we looked at last week, this is of utmost importance in the Christian life, to love one another. Peter says, above all, first and foremost, outside of your communing with the Lord, the most important thing for your Christian walk is that you love your fellow saints. It's what Jesus said. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. And the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. You love your fellow saint as you do yourself, and you must do that properly. We must do that biblically. He says, keep fervent, strain in that love, strive in that love. Let it be joined with maximum effort as you try to love one another. Try as hard as you can. Just very simply and bluntly put, strive with great effort, with great discipline to properly love your fellow saints. And understand, when you do that, one of the primary outworkings is that love covers a multitude of sins. Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. If you love someone properly, you will want their sins to be covered. And we went a couple of different ways with that last week. You go to someone and hold them accountable privately. You love your brother or sister in Christ so much that you do the hard work of holding one another accountable. Because accountability is one of the Lord's greatest works, one of his greatest gifts to us to help make us more like Christ. We're not created to live our Christian lives in a vacuum or, or on our own. There must be brotherhood. There must be accountability. But this love does cover sins. It, it keeps it private. You must willingly and eagerly overlook sin in a brother or sister when that fellow saint repents. You overlook and you cover it over. You don't go and tell others about it. It, it, is, it, becomes, it starts as private and it stays private when they repent. To love one another means that we must not be easily offended. If you want to have this type of love that covers a multitude of sins, you must not be easily offended and always on the lookout for a sin that you can confront another about. You must not ambush or overwhelm your fellow saints, but rather be patient, be gentle, be loving, and be gracious. But you must love them enough that you do confront that sin. I think if we're all honest, we could all say that there's a very fine and a very clear line between that strife-stirring hatred that wants to undercut a brother or sister in sin and that humble, loving attitude that wants to bring a fellow saint to repentance. It's a very clear line, 
and we know that line in our hearts and in our motives, and we need to ensure that we practice that properly. And so that kind of brings us to verse 9. It's kind of a sprint through what we looked at last week and just wanted to kind of reset the stage and, and set the context a little bit so now we can kind of almost see this whole text together as a whole. So verse 9, we see another exhortation from Peter to practice hospitality. It says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. So he follows that same pattern that was set up last time. He gives an exhortation and then he gives this descriptor or this modifier. The exhortation is that you be hospitable and the modifier is that you do it without a complaining spirit. So let's kind of break down all of that and understand hospitality on one hand we would think is a simple command to understand but unfortunately the term hospitable in scripture doesn't really mean the same thing that we use it to mean today. Hospitable is a word that speaks of being friendly or loving to strangers. That's kind of a, a direct definition of the Greek term here. So you might just think of hospitality as one who just willingly and joyfully opens their home to, to anyone, to your friends. You're, you're always you're happy and joyful and having company. But scripture in this command, it's not necessarily a one-to-one. -one. It, it's being friendly, being loving to strangers. So it's a broad description. Matthew Henry said that the hospitality here required is a free and kind entertainment of strangers and travelers. But Henry continued on and made the important distinction from the text that the proper objects of Christian hospitality are one another. Be hospitable to one another, the text says. So, so it's this friendliness to strangers. And, and if you think about the context of Peter's day, you can understand where this charge comes from. And we're going to lay all this groundwork, and then we're going to try to try to bring it into the present day because this is really a hard, a hard exhortation, I think, to bring from 2,000 years ago to today. It's difficult to understand how we might do that. But in Peter's day, the church was under intense persecution. People were bring, being run out from their homes. They were running for their lives. They often probably left their homes with nothing but the clothes on their back. And so they were dependent. The Christians of Peter's day were dependent on Christian hospitality. They were dependent on fellow saints in other towns opening up their homes to provide shelter and food and the things that they needed to sustain and protect their lives. Their survival was dependent upon this type of hospitality. It was a hospitality, surely, that must be driven, as we see in the previous verse, by love fervent love. Hebrews 13 verses 1 and 2 say this, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Let your love continue and don't neglect showing hospitality. It's essentially the same or a very similar Greek term, hospitality to strangers. That gets at the thrust of what the word means. In Romans 12, as we just read, Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor and practice hospitality. So you see the link. The link that is 
is almost unmissable in 1 Peter chapter 4, but also in the broader story of Scripture. Christian hospitality is joined with and flows out of fervent love between brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's that day, 2,000 years ago. So now let's think about how does that kind of work out today. Uh, The Reformation Study Bible, a great help and aid in Bible study, gives this explanation. It says, situations that might require hospitality include homelessness due to persecution, Christians traveling on business, or itinerant missionaries on journeys or on a furlough. It's that idea that when you see a fellow saint who needs help, who needs shelter, who needs somewhere to stay or some other type of assistance, you willingly and joyfully and gladly open yourself, your home, and your life. John Calvin would note that this should be mutually exercised, that we should not expect a type of hospitality that we do not ourselves give. Hospitality is is a mutual thing. Love of one another is a mutual thing. That doesn't give us the right or the reason to not practice it with someone if they don't reciprocate, if they don't return, but to work to its fullest, to work its best, to glorify God the most, and to allow us to get the most joy, it should be mutually practiced, mutually exercised. And, and so I think we can kind of land on a definition there to bring this to the present day, that it's a general type of generosity. It's an openness of home and heart and life that one Christian should offer to another. Because again, you think about, think about the express command from Peter, exactly what he's saying, and you think about, think about the day that we live in. You, you can't just show blind hospitality to any stranger off the street who comes up and says, oh, hey, I'm a Christian, I need a place to stay tonight, or I'm a Christian and I need some money for my next meal. Now, we want to show love, we want to be generous, but there must be some wisdom and some discernment. There are deceivers and scammers, and frankly, there are many who are are either legitimately crazy or dangerous, and so we must practice some wisdom. We must practice some discernment, but I want to encourage you. I want to encourage us that while we have that that mindset of, of being discerning and being wise and being careful, our hearts should always be to be able to give generously. Our heart, your, your response should always be that desire to give generously and faithfully and freely. It's that idea that you hold your possessions with open hands because all that you have comes from and belongs to the Lord. So again, you, you can have this idea where you want to be careful if you have the right heart focus, if you have the right mindset. Now, if you are just selfish and stingy and not a giving person, then you need to address that heart issue before deciding how to be discerning and how to be wise. But if you have a generous spirit, then the question can become, is this a right situation? Am I enabling sin or am I helping a fellow saint? You should always desire to give generously and meet needs of fellow saints, but I want that to go further. 
It's not just that we meet needs. Uh, we do meet needs. That is part of the duty of the church. But even beyond that, we must have generous spirits. We must be free givers. We must be free givers, especially among the church. That's uh, really one of the one of the most Christ-like things we can do with our fellow brothers and sisters is to show them a generous spirit. We must practice this generosity as a church, but it must flow out of our lives individually. A stingy person, a stingy people does not make for a generous church. And so I say that not, not as a rebuke to us, but as an exhortation that we might, we might go further and, and be more diligent in our giving and in our hospitality and in our generosity. But then Peter gives this descriptor, this modifier. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Without complaint. And so now we drive directly to the heart. Complaint is the Greek word gongusmos. Gongusmos. MacArthur once um, said that the word really means exactly what it sounds like. It's just this kind of muffled, moaning, muttering, grumbling type of spirit. Um, it can be defined as a secret displeasure. So it would describe someone who maybe goes and does an act of generosity, but in their spirit there is no joy, there is no generosity, there is no happiness in being able to supply that need. It is perpetual discontentment that is hidden or kept silent. It's a heart sin. It's not a sin of action. It can lead to sins of action, but it's a sin of the heart. And this type of complaining spirit, let me tell you, is devastating to the church. A perpetually discontent person who always wants more, who always, their first thought is how to accumulate things to and for themselves, how to serve themselves, they will devastate the church of the Lord. We must have a spirit of generosity. We must be joyful and cheerful givers. Joyless service will absolutely cripple the church. Joyless service will cripple the church. And I nor anyone else can tell you if you are serving with or without joy. Now, there are times it becomes evident, certainly. But we must examine our hearts. When we do things like worship through tithes and offering, do you have joy in that you get to give to the work of the Lord through his church? Or are you thinking, man, I really could have used that money elsewhere? I really could have used it for this or that or the other. When, when you have the opportunity to meet a need for a fellow saint, do you think, man, I really wish so-and-so would get their act together and not need this help? Or do you think, thank the Lord that he's blessed me and I get the opportunity to come alongside a brother or a sister? Joyless service kills the church. So to be hospitable is not an external action. It, it is an external action that is joined with a with a heart that desires to serve and love and give generously to one another. So again, the, the idea of hospitality and fervent love are, are unbreakably linked. 
if you fervently love a brother or sister, you will want to practice hospitality. You will want to be generous to them. And if you are generous and hospitable to your fellow saints, surely that will grow your love for them because hospitality does have this idea of sacrificing and, and then being together, growing your relationship. And if you do that, you will love one another more. It's critical to the church because the, the accountability, the fellowship, the brotherhood, the sisterhood of the church is critical to our walk with Christ. So that kind of brings a, a conclusion to one section of this, how, how we commune with God, and then now we've looked at how we relate to his people, and then moving into verses 10 and 11, I want to think about how we serve his church, how we serve his church. And the first exhortation there is that you use, you utilize your spiritual gift. Look at verse 10. It says, As each one of you has received a special gift, Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. As each one has received a gift, a special gift, the NAS reads, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So let's begin with that first phrase. As each one has received a special gift, there is a source indicated, and there is a specificity of that gift indicated. The source of that gift, of course, is the Holy Spirit. You have received a gift, and that's very important. We need to see that. You have received this gift from the Holy Spirit. You were passive in choosing the spiritual gift that the Lord would give you. The Lord chose how to gift each and every one of his people. He gives you that gift, and then you are a responsible steward. That means that you can't earn a different gift. Really, you can't even merit a, a greater amount of the gift that you've been given. You can nurture your gift. You can grow in the Holy Spirit. You can strive to honor the Lord and have him bless the ways that you serve with the gifts that he gives you. But you can't earn or merit a greater amount of that gift. The Lord gives, the Spirit works, and we praise the Lord for it. End of discussion. And we also see that that's the source, and we see that's a specific gift. The, the NAS, um, I think, very helpfully infers a word here. If you see italics, if you're reading the NAS, if you see italics, it means that that Greek word is not necessarily there, but it is a, a helpful interpretation, a clear interpretation. So he says that each one has received a special gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit of God to God's people is special, unique and specific. MacArthur, I think we all might be familiar, but he talks about how it's as though the Lord dips a paintbrush into various colors and, and he creates this unique individual from this entire color palette of spiritual gifts. He makes unique people to be uniquely fitted into individual, unique local churches. There's likely nobody else in this local church that has, uh, not likely, there is no one else. It's a special and unique gift. There's no one else in this church that has the same spiritual gift that you do. There's no one else that has painted the same color, is created in the same way that you are by God for use and for service in the local church. So again, with this being a unique gift from the Lord, it is uniquely given so that we might properly 
function in the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 and 11 said that to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Your gift is given for the common good. It's given individually just as the Spirit wills. And so what do we do with this unique gift? Peter says, Each one of you has received a special gift Employ it in serving one another. Employ it in serving one another. That's the the Greek word diokoneo. It's where we get the term deacon. A deacon is a servant, a minister in the church. And so effectively what Peter says is, you are to use your gift as a deacon serves in the church. You're familiar with the idea of deacons being the servants in the church body. And Peter says, your gifting should be used in that same way. You use it to minister to your fellow saints. And you use it, back to 1 Corinthians 12 that we just read, for the common good, for the building up of the body, for the edification, for the sanctification of of the saints you're given a unique gift so that the lord can use that gift to build his church and then for the modifier the the descriptor he says that we must use it serving one another as good stewards as good stewards of the manifold grace of god and just ask this very simple but very pointed question do you often think about yourself as a steward and a manager of the spiritual gift that the Lord has given you? Do you you think of yourself as a manager and a caretaker of what the Lord has entrusted to you? You have this specific skill set, this specific gifting in life, and it's given by the Holy Spirit. And you are its caretaker, its steward. You are to see to the proper function, the proper exercising, the proper growth, and the proper practice of it. That is our duties as stewards and managers of the gift of God. The Lord requires his stewards to be faithful. As a steward of the manifold grace of God, you must be faithful. It doesn't mean that you must go grow and and have this blossoming wide ministry with the gift the Lord gives you. You must be faithful faithful you must do what the lord calls you where the lord places you think about how far we ought to go in exercising and using this gift the apostle paul gives us instruction to that i think by his life first corinthians chapter 4 he said let a man regard us in this manner as servants of christ and stewards of the mysteries of god so paul says i'm a steward of the mysteries of god How did Paul steward that gifting? How how far did he go in his exercising of that gift and that work entrusted to him by the Lord? Well, he devoted his life after his conversion to the preaching of the gospel of Christ. He devoted his life to it, and he gave his life for it. He was willing to pay the ultimate cost to be a faithful steward. So are you willing to follow Paul and to imitate Paul as he imitated Christ in being a faithful servant of the Lord. 
you know, just we need to consider the weightiness of that. The weightiness of being a steward of what the Lord entrusts to you. It's a weightiness, but it's also freeing. Because if you're practicing what the Lord has given you, if you're serving faithfully in the church in the way that the Lord has gifted you, you're doing all you are supposed to. You don't need to try to broaden out your audience. You need to be faithful among God's people. You need to be faithful among God's people for the sake, as we'll see in a few moments, of God's glory. So you must utilize your spiritual gift, and then the final exhortation in the text is that you must serve with humility. Serve with humility. Verse 11, Peter says, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So I want to kind of tie these two ideas together under the idea of serving with humility. When you think about spiritual gifts, they're kind of typically understood to be two overarching categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Speaking gifts, things like preaching and teaching and knowledge and wisdom and and encouragement, things that require that you speak, that you use your mouth and speak words to practice that gift. And then there's things that require service, the gift of administration, the gift of Mercy, the gift of helps, those things don't require speaking, they require service. And what we see is, as we tie those together, what Peter is pushing at and getting at is that you must serve whatever your gift, wherever on that spectrum you land, you serve with humility. So he begins by talking about those who, who serve with a speaking gift. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. The utterances of God. You speak only, only the words of the Lord. The, the word utterances is the Greek term logion. It, it's, a, it's a derivative of logos. It speaks to a word or a narrative or a statement. So Peter says, the one who speaks the one who has a gift of speaking within the church, your duty is to speak only the narrative of God's word. Period. You speak God's word and his truth. There's no room for personal opinion. There's no room for personal anecdotes. There's no room for, for a trivial time of jokes and jesting. There's little need for personal testimony. When we speak God's word among his people, we teach and preach and proclaim what is in the scriptures. What is in the scriptures alone. And when we embrace this type of service, there comes with it this seriousness, this solemnity, this reverence as we proclaim the truth. When you understand that you proclaim only God's word, you understand that it must be a serious and a weighty time. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that there's no time in life for laughter and joking and fun, but when we come to moments of speaking God's word and sitting under its authority, there's but one mood, and that is the mood of reverence, of seriousness, because God's word is serious. God is holy. God's word is holy. 
And we should treat the time sitting under his authoritative words as being just that, a sacred and set-apart time. And to treat and handle God's word properly then, I think it requires a first basic heart and mindset, and that is the mindset and the heart of humility. Because you must be submitted to the scriptures. You must be submitted to God's authority, to God's knowledge, and to God's wisdom. You must submit to the truth. So the one who speaks must humbly speak according to God's word. And the one who serves, Peter continues on, is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Paul would give us, in a kind of a different context, he would give us another wording to that in Ephesians 6 by saying, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So whether you're fighting the spiritual battles as Paul talks in Ephesians 6, or whether you're serving in the church of God, as we see in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Serve by the grace and the power which he supplies that he works in you. He is the source of your strength because he is the source of your gifting. If you're walking in the Spirit and in the gifts which the Spirit gives you, there is only one way for that to work itself out properly, and it's by serving in the strength that He gives. You're doing God's work among God's people in the way that God calls you to do in the power that He alone supplies. So again, to sum these two up, I think is is simple, but it's very profound. The, The speaking gift and the serving gifts we must serve in all humility with humble hearts you speak his words and you serve in the strength that he supplies ministry in the church and among god's people hear this is not about the person doing the ministering it's about god's glory Your ministry, whatever it may be in the church, is not about you. It's about making much of Christ. We say it this way, your service should always make less of yourself and make more of Christ. When speaking, you're not the end of every illustration. You're not the source of every bit of wisdom. You're not the energy when you serve. You're not the energy and the discipline and the strength behind every act of service. You may be tremendously disciplined in your life. You may be disciplined as you serve God's people, but that service is not about your discipline. It's about the strength that God supplies and the grace that he works in you. To serve the Lord properly requires a humble heart, and it works together. It pushes toward God's glory. And really that leads us to the conclusion, the the climax, the pinnacle of this passage at the end of verse 11. It says, You serve by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says that God is to be glorified in Christ Jesus in all things. In all things. Not in some, not in most, but all 
things. As the Puritans would say, all of life is lived to the glory of God. Every moment for God's glory. Every service for God's glory. Every word for God's glory. Christ is the head of the church, is he not? He is its author and its perfecter, its head, its its sustainer. He is her defender, her good, and her chief shepherd. He bought the church. He purchased the church. He lived that perfect life, and he died on the cross, shedding his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. He died on the cross and took the wrath that we earned and that we deserved so that we would be his people, so that he would be our shepherd and we would be his sheep. He is, as John describes, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He died on the cross. He was raised from the dead on the third day, and he has ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father where he receives all glory and dominion forever and ever. He gave his own life and he shed his own blood to purchase the church and therefore he deserves all glory and honor and praise from the church. And you're part of the church of those who are purchased by Christ when you repent of your sin and he gives you faith and belief and understanding of and submission to the truths of what he did to bear God's wrath and earn our salvation. You're part of the church when you believe and when you repent. And if you're part of the church, the Lord deserves all honor and glory and praise from your life. And so if that's what the Lord deserves, we must follow his instructions. We must live with urgency because the end is near. The days are short. The, the time is at hand for the return of Christ, and we must live in light of that. As we see that end drawing near, we must pursue right communion with God and submission to and flowing out of the truth of Scripture. We must love one another deeply and fervently and battle together against sin. We must be hospitable. We must love and, and have a generous spirit and serve one another without complaint. Serve one another with joy. We must use our spiritual gifts. The Lord brings together a people that he has called out to be what we call a local church, this assembly, this body of believers. And he doesn't give a body of believers two mouths or two noses or two or four ears or two or four eyes. I don't know how you would actually delineate that he doesn't give us multiple legs or multiple hands he places you in the body to serve because the body doesn't function as it could as it should if everyone does not come together to serve when we come together to serve dear saints it must be it must be with all humility with hearts that are so joyful Hearts that are so grateful to be entrusted by God with these gifts to serve his people. Again, if you understand yourself as a steward of the gifts given by God, what else could you be but humble in the practice and in the service of those things? Serve God's people with humility 
and in all things work together toward and for the glory of God. The glory of God in Christ through the church and to Christ belongs all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He is exalted. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy of the devotion of your life because to him belongs all glory and all dominion forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we...